Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and the word of the Lord reads this way. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. The hymn writer Horatius, Horatius Bonner once wrote, The gospel comes to the sinner at once with nothing short of a complete forgiveness as the starting point of all efforts to be holy. It does not say, go and sin no more and I will not condemn you. It says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. I I think that um, at some point in our lives, most of us, I believe, on some level, would love to change the world. Because obviously, it needs to be changed. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist for us to see that there's something wrong with the world. The world is broken, right? And we can see it all around us. And I'm not just trying to be overly dramatic this morning. I mean, you know, all you need to do is read the paper, look at the news. And I'm not talking about the hyped up stories that we all know about and that we hear about. I mean, I'm not talking about the major headlines that every news agency is running, right? I'm talking about all the other stories that, that, just, just, that, that are so numerous you can't even read them all. In fact, let me just share with you a couple of stories you know, just from this week. And again, it's just a tiny smattering. Friday, police in northern Utah um, are investigating after a family of four and a dog were found dead with gunshot wounds and what is believed to be a murder-suicide. That doesn't even make big headlines anymore because it's so common for those kinds of things to happen. Thursday, police arrested a 15-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy, who's accused of fatally shooting a Dollar General store clerk in Dallas during a failed robbery attempt. A pregnant woman is accused of burning her roommate's ferret to death in her hot oven after an argument over clothes. New Hampshire police said on Wednesday, a 23-year-old Ohio substitute teacher was arrested for allegedly having sex with two, at least two high school students, police said. Again, a story that's so common doesn't shock anybody anymore. Police in Kansas say that an elementary school secretary was arrested Wednesday in connection with an emailed bomb threat that forced a school district to cancel classes and an afternoon activities um, over the last two days. Uh, or, I mean, to cancel classes and after-school activities over two days earlier this week. And then out of New York, there's a story that says that it has been announced that the opioid drug abuse has killed more Americans than Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Vietnam Wars combined. And then, again, we have an 11-year-old boy who was arrested Saturday afternoon after reportedly used a toy gun to rob a woman at an ATM in Arkansas. The victim was a 68-year-old woman, and she told the police that she was hit in the face with a weapon when she tried to get into her car after visiting the bank at Little Rock. 
These are just a tiny little fraction of the stories. Right? And we don't even hear about them because there's so many other big stories. Right? There's so much else happening in the world. Like last Sunday when a, a coward walked into a church and murdered 27 people as they worshipped. As a coward made a point to point blank shoot children. Right? That, that got the national coverage, but there's all these other stories, right? right? And, and, and you don't have to look very far. They're all around us. I mean, there are more and more teachers having inappropriate relationship with students than we can count, right? Men and women of power and influence have been found to have, have sexually assaulted other people, right? More and more parents are killing their children. Younger and younger children are engaging in the worst kinds of crimes, the world is broken, and we can see it. It's not a thing that we debate anymore. It's a, it's a fact. And as I said, most of us want to change that. We would love to change that. And I believe that when we were kids, we believed that we could change the world. Right? When we were kids, we believed that we could end world hunger. When we were children, we thought we could fix the environment. When we, be- when we were kids, we believed that we could end racism and stop bullying. But as we get older, we find that the problems didn't really seem to go away or they just were replaced with other kinds of problems. Like the problem of world hunger is being replaced with the problem of slavery and sex trafficking around the world. And the solutions that we developed to help us with the problem about the environment seem to have even worse environmental consequences than the problem that we started with. And for all that we've done and all the work to end racism, you know, there are still those people in our culture who have who've made it their mission to undo the progress that's been done because there's way too much money and influence for people of every race to who are willing to divide people against each other and promote stereotypes and hate. And we find that in our quest to end bullying, All we have done is create a whole new class of other bullies who now are sanctioned by special interest groups and even the government to silence anyone who doesn't agree with their agenda. It seems like we work to solve problems and three more pop up in their place. And in the process, we begin to ask ourselves, well, what can we do? Right? What can I do to make a difference? How can I change the world? The problems are so big, but I'm so small. And for, for many of us, it be, we become disillusioned. We, we, be, we believe that, that we can't do anything to, to really impact the world around us. The big dreams of making the world a better place, the big dreams of creating a better tomorrow seem to become wishes and pipe dreams. And as we grow up, we, we face greater and greater responsibility and we get busy with, with life and, and, and taking care of our families. We, begin, we become covered up with routines and, and, and as we begin paying our bills and providing for our children and as we experience the difficulty and the disappointment and the reality that the world is actually a pretty tough place to live, those dreams that we have, those dreams to change the world just become really a distant memory for many of us. And for some of us, we just give up. We just become overwhelmed by all the obstacles. And we just say, forget it. <laughs> the best that I can do is take care of me and mine. Right? The best that I can do is, is to live my life, raise my kids, and do my best not to make things worse. Right? 
Or for other people, you know, we try to do some things to make a world better place, you know, in, in, in practical ways, right? We sponsor a child. We help our neighbors, right? We, we, put, we give food to the, the, the food pantry. And all these are good things, but for many of us, we feel like this is all that we're really going to be able to do, right? That we, we're doing our best to help others, but it's only just a little bit. But ultimately, we're not really going to change anything long-term is what we feel. And then there are those who don't think that there's any point to make things better anyway. There are those who think and say the world is going to hell in the handbasket anyway, so why try? Right? It's going to burn anyway was the rationale, right? In fact, the 80s and 90s are marked by a deep sense of apathy from the church towards the world's problems. And the reason for that is because there were so many people who became so over-focused on eschatology in the end times that it became this unhealthy obsession about, about not with prophecy, but a tiny little portion of prophecy relating to the end times called eschatology. Most people, when they say prophecy, they mean eschatology, but that's just a tiny bit of it. It's actually eschatology they're talking about. And many in the church across America all, you know, heard that the world's coming to the end, coming to an end. That Jesus is coming back because this person over here is the Antichrist or that person over there is the Antichrist. And, and this country signing another uh, treaty with this other country. That means that that's the, this part of Revelation is being fulfilled. And so they believe that it's going to happen now any day. Be ready is what, we were, what they were told. And, and, and what you need to understand, we absolutely need to live expectantly for Christ to return at any moment. He said that he would, right? Like a thief in the night. But this obsession of trying to read the signs in the headlines in the newspapers and trying to guess when it's all going to happen almost ruined the church. Because people literally thought, who cares about the world? Right? The church isn't going to be here much longer anyway. It's going to disappear that's what they would say. In fact, the church became so focused on the end times that the message that was being preached from the pulpit was not come to Jesus to be saved from your sins so you can then follow Jesus as a disciple feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and loving the unlovable. It became about something else. Instead, it was come to Jesus so you don't get left behind. Never mind loving your enemies. Never mind being a good steward of the earth that, 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 you, that God had gave, given you. Never mind that there are people who have physical, real, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs right now. Never mind all that stuff because the world's going to end anyway. And that's what we ended up with. It was a generation of Christians that didn't care about the world. Because they weren't going to be here much longer anyway was their view. This is a documented fact. In fact, this is why so many millennials have rejected the church. is because it became about who cares, right? Who cares about the, the concerns of the world because it's all going to burn. And so this church became apathetic towards the needs of the world. And became so much, and it, became so, it became so much so, the church, in essence, was waiting around for prophecy to be fulfilled instead of actually getting busy doing the things that Christ called the church to do. And that's where we are. We either feel helpless because life is hard and complicated and we feel like we can't do anything, right? Or we feel like because of our convictions that it's pointless to do anything. Or we feel like we can do some things, but we're really not going to be able to do much compared to the size of the problem. And, and, and we're at one time in our lives, we would dream big and everything was possible. Now it seems like 
We live in a place and a time where the best we can hope for is to just get by. But there's really something that I think you need to know. You were not called by God to get by. You were not saved to, right, to simply live out the rest of your life. You were not called by God to get into a relationship with Jesus so you can sit there and watch history go by. You were not called by God to become a new creation so you can sit there and obsess about what may or may not happen in your lifetime with respect to your end times view. You were called by God. You were called by the God of the universe to change the world. You were called by God himself to make a difference. You were called individually and collectively to accomplish the will of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the great truth, that is the great Promise about salvation that we learn from scriptures. You're saved by grace through faith. We learned, or as we learned from our series, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of what God has for you. As you read it in context, it says you were saved for. So there's a word that follows that for, because we are his workmanship. All right, that word workmanship means we're his masterpiece. We were handcrafted by God in essence. We were, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were saved for good works. You were saved for life-changing, world-altering good works. And look what he says. He says, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God saved you for a purpose. God saved you to change the world. And not only is it what he created you for, but he's already got a plan for that. He's already prepared for you to do that. He's already got something he wants you to do to accomplish that. Now, obviously, it's fair to ask, then what is that purpose? What is it he wants me to do then? How am I supposed to change the world? How am I supposed to achieve, you know, am I supposed to achieve world peace? Is that what I'm after? Well, no, because let's face it. We can work and we should work for world peace. Right? But let's be honest. We're not going to achieve world peace. It's not going to happen until Christ comes. Right? And I'm not being negative here. Right? I'm an optimist by nature. But I'm not, so I'm not being negative. I just, I just understand we live in a broken world filled full of broken people. And because of that, someone somewhere will always have conflict with someone else. Right? It's just the way it is. Someone's interests will conflict with someone else's interest over land or over resources or over religion or over family ties or over what somebody posted on Facebook. There will always be conflict somewhere, this side of heaven. And so world peace is an ideal we absolutely need to strive for and work towards. But it's not the thing that God wants us to, com- to accomplish. Well, what about ending world hunger? And again, we should work towards Ending world hunger. We should feed the hungry. In fact, the percentage of people in the world living in dire poverty who are hungry um, has dropped from 23.3% of the world's population in uh, about 25 years ago 
to now a low of 12.9%. It's a huge drop, right? The church has done a wonderful, marvelous job through, through organizations like Samaritan's Person, World Vision, to absolutely reduce the amount of people who are hungry in the world. There are fewer people living today in hunger than any time in, in human history. And that's a victory to be celebrated. But, but, we will, but will we actually permanently end world hunger? Probably not. Because we live in a broken world. And governments still will use food as a weapon. Right? And we live in a world where economic systems fail. And, and natural disasters happen and cause food shortages. Ending world hunger is something we should work towards. But we're not going to permanently accomplish it this side of heaven. What about slavery? Now you talk about something that's really gotten worse. There are more people enslaved in the world today than any point in human history. Right now, there's more slaves in the world today than there ever was in any point in human history. And it runs the gamut from everything from forced labor to, to sex slavery, including children. And, and, and the thing is, is there are secular organizations and churches right now making every effort to rescue victims and to end slavery around the world. And I believe that it can get better, and I believe that this problem can change. But we are not going to permanently solve this problem because we live in a broken world with broken people, and there will always be someone to exploit someone else until Christ returns. So yes, we should work towards these things, but these things are not the purpose that God has for us. Yes, we should feed the hungry. Yes, we should promote peace. Yes, we should feed, we should free those who are in bondage. But those things are not our purpose. Those things are the means toward our purpose. Our purpose, as we talked about last week, is to glorify God. And God wants us to accomplish that purpose. God wants us to change the world through that purpose. And the way that he wants us to do that is to share our hope that we have in Christ Jesus with the rest of the world. That is what he wants out of us. That is the purpose that he has for our lives. Psalm 96.3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. We are to share the hope that we have in God with the rest of the world. Matthew 26, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 15, And then he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 13, 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And, then, and look at this, And then, and then the end will come. God's purpose for you, God's purpose for me, God's purpose for this church and the church abroad is to change the world by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus talks about loving or a lot about the poor and meeting their needs. But he doesn't tell us that that is our end goal. So it's not our goal to end world hunger. Right? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We talked about that in our series on the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. But, but, but he doesn't say that our goal is to achieve world peace. In fact, Jesus even said that he's not come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. 
We are absolutely encouraged to set the captives free, but we're not told that the purpose of the Christian is to end world slavery. God's purpose is to be glorified by the whole word, world hearing about the gospel. David said, the psalmist said in 22, Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. God's purpose is to be glorified by the whole world, learning about who he is and then turning to him through faith and giving him worship. God is to be glorified by people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, believing in him, turning to him in faith. That is the purpose. That's the purpose that you and I were called to. That's actually how we change the world. Well, how then do we accomplish this? Well, Paul tells us, where he actually asks a question in Romans 10. He says, how then... Will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He goes on to say, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, how are they going to hear? Well, you got to go tell them. You got to get out there and tell them. And that's what we're all called to do. That is your purpose. That is how you change the world. God's purpose is for your life and for the church to bring him glory by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have with the rest of the world. That's how you change the world. And all of God's redemptive activity, if you read the Bible, all of his redemptive activity is moving towards that end. That's the final part of history for the whole world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means, and you, your purpose is to share Christ with the world. Christian, like if you want to know what God's will for your life is, people are going to, Pastor, man, I want to just know what God's will for my life is. I'll just tell you, God's will for your life is for you to go share the gospel with the rest of the world. Well, but aren't I supposed to be loving? Well, of course you're supposed to be loving, right? But that's as a means to share Christ with the world. Well, aren't I supposed to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves? Absolutely you do that. But that's also a means to glorify God and share Christ. Well, aren't I supposed to take care of the poor? Yes, we need to do that as a means to glorify God and share the hope of Christ. Because think about what Jesus said. Mark chapter 8, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, I understand that this text has a direct context in the scripture, and it's about discipleship and following Christ. But this text actually has a broader application we can apply to the rest of the world. In fact, think about this. What does it gain someone for you to feed them in their bodies and then neglect to give them the news that could save their soul? What does it gain for a child for you to give them a Christmas present so they feel good and they feel loved and they feel accepted for the moment, but then neglect to tell them that God accepts them if they would just put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved? 
What does it gain to set someone free from physical slavery for the few years that they have on this earth but neglect to tell them how they can be free all the rest of eternity from guilt and condemnation in their sin? You see the big picture application here. Yes, we need to do these things. Yes, needs, these needs need to be met. But our purpose is not to change the world for someone temporarily. That's the means to the end. Our purpose is to change the world for someone permanently, eternally. That is our purpose. That is my purpose. That is your purpose. We're to change the world for someone permanently, forever. And everything that we do is supposed to be pointed at that end. Everything that you do for your children, everything we do for our friends, everything we do for our neighbors, everything we do for the strangers that we meet on the street is not simply to make life better here and now. Everything we do ultimately is to help make their life better for eternity. That's why your purpose, that's why my purpose, but the church's Purpose. The body of Christ is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone around us. That's why Paul says, Romans chapter 1, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Right? Have you ever been eager to preach the gospel? Right? <laughs> He's eager. He says, I'm eager to preach it. I'm eager to share it. I'm eager to tell you about Jesus. Why? Because I want to change the world, not temporarily, but for eternity. And he says, for, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to tell you about Jesus. I'm not ashamed to share my faith with you. I'm not ashamed of the fact you're going to ask me big questions. And you might even push back on some of the things that I have to say. I'm not ashamed, but I'm eager to share. I'm excited. I'm motivated to share it with you. Right? And you know why I'm eager? You know why I'm excited? For, he says, because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And I don't want you to miss this because I've read this verse so many times and I missed it like the first hundred times, I think. All right? He says the gospel, Paul says the gospel is not just a message, right? The gospel is not some religious story amongst many other religious stories. It's not simply just retelling an event in history, right? The gospel is so much more than that. The gospel is the very power of God. Let that sink in. It's the power of God. It's the power of God to change everything. In fact, this word power in the Greek is uh, it's pronounced dunamis, right? And it's related to the word that we have for dynamite, right? And the idea that underlies both of those words is power, force, might, or ability, right? And the Apostle Paul, what he's saying is the gospel, the good news is the very power, the very might of God, the very ability of God, not to just change the world here and now, but change it for eternity for someone forever. It's the power to save sinners. Eliot's commentary actually puts this expression this way. He says, the gospel is a powerful agency put forth by God himself. The lever, as it were, by which he moved the world. That's a great way to put that. It's, it's a tool in the hands of God to change the world. Right? Gill's commentary says, it's the power of God organically and instrumentally as a means made use of by, of by God in quickening dead sinners 
enlightening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, softening hard hearts, and making enemies friends, to which add the manner in which all this is done, suddenly, secretly, effectually, and by love and not force. The message, the gospel message, not the preacher, right? Not the, not, not the church building, right? The message, the gospel message is the power. It is the tool of God for salvation. It's the power to change the entire world. The, God, the, the, the gospel is the very might of God wielded by his followers bringing salvation. You have no greater power than to, than to wield the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this salvation is, is a complete salvation. Right? It's not simply just justification where we're declared right with God and our record is expunged. Right? I mean, yes, the gospel, through the gospel, we are saved from the penalty of our sins for sure. That is absolutely a huge part of it. But we also have peace with God as a result. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's a point we were God's enemy, right? We were under his wrath. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't even like having an, human enemies. But we were the enemy of the greatest force in all of the universe, right? And now we are no longer his enemy. We have peace with God. And more than that, we are reconciled back to God. Paul says in verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, being reconciled is, is about repairing relationships. Right? That's what that word means. We're reconciled to God. We were his enemies, now we're for his family. Now I don't know about you, but I know what reconciliation feels like in my family. When there's a family member that you are distant from, a family member that, that you were separated from, and then somehow, somewhere, by the grace of God, you make amends, and now you're close together again. You are reconciled. All right? If you can imagine that in your own family, that's what happened between you and God on a much greater level. We are, were his enemies, now we're his family. And then more than that, we are also set free, not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well. Paul says in Romans six seventeen, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching in which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Salvation, the salvation we get from the gospel brings eternal life, freedom from the penalty of our sins, freedom from the power of sin in our lives. It gives us peace with God, reconciliation with God. And ultimately, ultimately our hope is that it gives us freedom from the presence of sin. Because one day, Christ will come and take us home. That's where our hope is. And one day when we, when we go home with him, we will be with him forever and there will be no more sin and no more effect of sin on us. No more sin destroying our minds or our relationships. And the results will absolutely be staggering. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but that passage just resonates with me. Right? The idea that there will not be any more pain or tears. 
right, or crying. It'll just be joy and hope. And that is the power of God. That is the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel can accomplish. Feeding people to feed them, setting people free from bondage from this life, comforting those who need to be comforted in this world are all very good things that we must do and practice. But they are too small of things, too insignificant of things in the scope of eternity for that to be our ultimate goal. They are too temporal for it to be our purpose. You see, you feed someone, wonderful, but they will be hungry again. Feed them the word, though. Give them the word of God and that they will live forever. In fact, Jesus draws this parallel for us. John chapter 4, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Every physical need that you're going to meet will probably need to be met again. If you feed them, you're going to have to feed them again. Right? If, they be, if, if you comfort them, they'll need to be comforted again. Right? If you give them water, they will need to drink again. If you give them clothes, guess what? They will wear out, especially their little kids. You will have to, you will have to do that again. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give, that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. Why? He says, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The point is, meeting people's needs, as important as it is, is temporary. Helping them to know Christ, that's forever. That's forever. Your purpose, my purpose. The purpose of the church is to glorify God by sharing the gospel with the rest of the world. And that, by the way, of a very long introduction, is what this particular series is all about. It's titled, Entrusted with the Gospel. Because God has entrusted every single one of us with a message of hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's God's plan for all of our lives to go out and share the gospel that he's entrusted all of us to. In fact, he calls us not to be ashamed. He calls us to be eager to share it. Because as Paul says, the gospel is the power of God, the very tool of God to change the world forever. And we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about that in this series and what that means for us and our lives. But today, I just kind of want to wrap up with probably the most basic of all questions we can ask at this point. I think it's probably the right place to start. And the question is, what is the gospel anyway? And I'm not trying to be silly here because I realize that, that we all kind of know, you know, what the gospel is. I mean, if you're a Christian, you, you have to believe the gospel. I think we all, you know, in some way, we could kind of roughly kind of like explain it. But what I do know is you're not really comfortable sharing the gospel. And I think a big part of that reason is because you're not really sure exactly how to explain it, how to put it into words. Right? I think that many of us just really don't know where to begin. I mean, we've been entrusted with this message, but we're not sure how to get it out there. And then the truth is, what makes it worse is there's a lot of competing voices out there that get the gospel completely wrong. Right? And it confuses us. I mean, there are people who believe that the gospel is about making you healthy, wealthy, and happy for the rest of your life. But that's not the gospel. Right? 
Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Right? The Christian life is equated over and over again with persecution and suffering. Right? And then for other people, the gospel is simply about wanting more out of life spiritually. That's where a lot of the culture is today. They're not opposed to spiritual things. In fact, they crave spiritual things. But they want spiritual things because they want to feel spiritual, but not really because they understand what the issue is. And so people are told, you can come to Jesus to have a, a more robust spiritual life. Just pray this prayer, and then you're, you're, you're saved. But that is not, that's not the gospel. Right? The gospel is something else. The gospel is actually the fact that you have a problem and God in his love for you solved it for you. In fact, the gospel at its foundational level is this. You have a huge problem. And this problem is going to lead to catastrophic consequences in your life, in this life and worse in eternity. And there's nothing you personally on your own can do to fix the problem. You are helpless. And God made a way to solve your problem. And there's only one solution to your problem. And you can have that solution if only you will receive it as a gift by faith. That right there is the functional, basic gospel. That's the found, at the foundational level, that's what is accomplished in the gospel. You have a problem. That problem is going to cost you big here, now, and eternity. You can't fix it, no matter how bad you want to. But God, for some reason, had grace and has a solution. And you can have that solution as, as a gift. That's it. That's the gospel in its most basic technical terms. Now, I realize it doesn't sound very pastorally or doesn't even sound all that biblical, you know, right? But that's really the essence of the details. In fact, there's a, a text I want to share with you that will bear that out. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is the place where you will find the very shortest explanation of the gospel, and you'll see how this fits. Paul says... Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Right? Now let me, hear, just, let me tell you what Paul's saying. He goes, Paul said, I taught you, I gave to you the gospel. Right? I didn't make it up. I didn't invent it. I received it. It's the gospel that I was taught. And what Paul does in the next few verses is he re repeats an actual statement that he learned. It's actually a little poem. In Greek, it makes sense. In English, it doesn't quite translate as well. Okay? But in the next few verses, it contains what he's going to say in the next few verses contains the oldest creedal statement about the Christian faith known to man. We sing that song that says, I believe, I believe in God. The Father. That's called a creedal statement. We sing a song that basically expresses our belief, right? It's a creedal formulation. It, it, it talks about the foundational things that we believe, all right? Well, what Paul's going to talk about in the next couple of verses is the oldest creedal statement known to man. In fact, this statement has been dated by skeptical scholars within three years of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I hope you understand the importance of that. 
This creedal statement that we're going to show you here in just a second is dated within three years of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if anybody has ever told you, well, you know, the gospel, you know, that's, that was made up and it evolved over time. And the idea that, that Jesus rose from the dead was something that was added on later by the church. No, wrong. Historically, even the skeptics, the people who do not believe in Christ, will affirm to you that this statement that we're about to read was formulated, was actually put together, was actually made to express their faith within three years of Christ dying on the cross. And some scholars will even date it within a few months after the cross happened. And so the, the next verse is the earliest set of texts that explains the gospel in the Bible. Okay? It's, it's like a little pithy statement. Like when we talked about in, in, our, in our Reformation series, we, we said we had big ideas that were, were reduced down to just a couple of statements. Sola Scriptura, sola you know, fide, sola, uh, sola gratia. You know, all those statements represented a bigger theology. Well, this is what this statement does here. Okay? And so Paul, in this very next verse, he repeats this statement and says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I know this seems like a very simple little phrase, but in the Greek, it's like a little poem. It's a little thing, like a little mnemonic device that would help you to remember something. All right? And so this statement right here is the earliest known gospel formulation. People would use this statement to help to start the conversation about the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Right. And when, and then, and then after that, Paul then adds that he appeared to Caiaphas, which is Peter, then to the 12. And then he appeared more uh, to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of all, whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, in this particular text, Paul's doing two things. He's explaining what the gospel is, right? And then he turns and he proves that the gospel is true by citing all the eyewitnesses who saw it happen. Because when he said these words, people can then go, okay, all right, I will talk to them. He told them who to go talk to, Right? Now, 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 in the interest of time, I would love to even expound upon that. But all I can really do is focus really what Paul's saying about the gospel here. And Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this text is the entire gospel all packaged up nice and neat. And to really kind of grasp what's being communicated, we kind of need to take it apart and unpack it. And the first thing that we need to understand is that what Paul is talking about here is a historical event. He's not talking about a religious idea. He is not talking about some vision that he had, right? Because he ate some bad mushrooms or something, right? He's, he's talking about something that happened with verifiable witnesses. And what happened was Christ died, and three days later, he rose again. Christ died, and three days, he rose again. And not only did that happen, but it happened according to what the Word of God said in in Scripture. But the first question I think we need to ask is, why? Why did this happen? He tells us what happened. Why does it happen? Christ died for our sins. That's That's what happened, right? But why? Well, this is the all important jumping off place. 
You see, before you get to the good news of the gospel, you have to understand the bad news. Without the bad news of the gospel, you will, the, the good news doesn't make any sense. Without the bad news, Christ dying is stupid, right? The gospel begins with our understanding of the bad news. And the bad news begins with the fact that you have a problem, a big problem. We are all sinners, right? That's why Christ had to die. He died for our sins. We're sinners, And Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in our lives have done things that the Bible calls sin. We've all cheated. We've all lied. We've all stolen. We've all hurt people. We've all denied God. We've all blasphemed his name. We've all had thoughts that we shouldn't be having. We've all sinned and we all know it. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. And we all know the things that we were doing were wrong when we were doing them. And what is worse, we're born that way. Paul says we're by our very nature, children of wrath. We're born in a life of sin because we inherited that nature from our forefather, Adam, who was the first to sin. We inherited the tendency to sin, and then we validated it by our own choices to willfully sin against God. And because we're sinners, we face an even bigger problem. The bigger problem is that we have, we have, we've been, we're spiritually dead as a result of our sin. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You were spiritually dead. Because why? The wages of sin, what you deserve because of sin, is death. That's what we deserve because of our sin. This is the spiritual death. And it, it, it not only corrupts us in this life now, but it leads to everlasting torment. Revelation 20, verse 12, is a set of verses, beginning, beginning of a set of verses that should absolutely make you stand up and take notice. Actually, this is a set of verses that the world wants to deny exists. Right? But it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. That means we're going to be judged. Right? The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. The bad news is that you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you have a huge problem. You will not only experience pain and grief and disease and heartache and betrayal and death in this life, but as a consequence, you will be judged by a holy God, a righteous God, who will, who will throw you into hell, an eternity of torment because of your sin. And I don't want to overstate things here, but, but this is the greatest problem you're ever going to face. Doesn't matter how good your life is right now. Doesn't matter how much money you have right now. Doesn't matter how much popularity that you. I don't care how nice your car is, right? This life, as you know it, at some point will end, and you will face God, and you will be held accountable for your sin, and He will cast you into hell because of your sin. And what's worse is you can't fix it. You can't be good enough. You can't smile enough. You can't feed enough homeless people. You can't rescue enough kittens. You can't do enough good deeds to undo it. Paul says, no one's going to be justified by the works of the law. Isaiah says, the very best that you're going to do is like filthy rags, trash before God. 
See, we have a problem. We're sinners destined to go to hell with no way to escape it. But then comes the good news. By the grace of God, and only by His grace, He offers us a solution. God has made a way in His love for us to be rescued. In fact, Paul says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins. That's the way that He made. Now, why? Why did He die? Why did He have to die? Well, it's because God is a God of justice. He is righteous. God cannot simply look the other way when it comes to our sin. Sin must be punished. And the reality is we know it. And on some level, we expect it. And on another level, we're going to demand it. We expect that God would deal with Hitler. We expect that God would deal with the coward who would walk into a church service and stick a rifle up against an 18-month-old child and pull the trigger. Every single one of us understands that justice needs to be done. Every one of us demands that God deal with him. God will punish sin. That means ours too. But God came into the world and he voluntarily took upon himself our sin. And he received in his own body the punishment we deserve. Christ had to die to set us free. That is the only way. His death was the punishment that we deserved. And so Christ took our sins and he gave up his righteousness. To, he gave us his righteousness. We're made righteous, right? We're made righteous not because of what we've done, but by the very blood of Jesus. And then three days later, Christ rose again. And this is an important part of the gospel. He rose again. He conquered sin. He conquered death. The grave didn't hold him. And by this miracle, the greatest of all miracles, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is exactly what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins. That is the solution. Christ died and rose again. To make a way out for you. And there is no other solution. There is no other road. There is no other path. Not all religions lead to the same. It does not work that way. There is one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way, and that is Jesus. So we had a big problem. And that problem had huge consequences. And it was unfixable for us. That God in his mercy had a solution, one solution, and we received that as a gift. Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. He also says in Romans 3.28, we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He also says... For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We receive God's gift of forgiveness by faith in him, by putting our trust in him, by believing the historical events and what was accomplished through that. We receive the gift of God's forgiveness by faith. 
And then that is the gospel we turn around and share. We have a problem. It leads to consequences. We can't escape it on our own. But God created a solution. And we receive that as a gift through faith. That's the gospel. Not about come to Jesus and you'll have the car that you wanted. Not, hey, come to Jesus and all your relationships will magically get better. I mean, I believe that being a Christian, you become you, you can become a better parent, a better father, a better human, all right? But those are side effects of the real problem being solved, that God had mercy on you, a sinner. That is the gospel we preach. That is the message that is the power of God himself to save sinners. That's the power he's given you, the tool he's given you to change the world. Not just temporarily, but permanently. You can change the world. The dream is alive. You have the power of God to change the world. That's the power that God has entrusted to you. The question that you have to ask yourself is, what are you going to do with it? And that's the question we're going to explore over the next few weeks. Because it is my heart's mission to raise up a people in this church who are willing to use what God has entrusted them to go rescue the rest of our community. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. I say simple because I realize you've just solved the greatest problem in my life because you love me. It's simple in the fact that, that I understand how it works. I'm a sinner. I am, I am a sinner by my own actions and by my own admission. And because of that, there's consequences I will face. And I can't fix it on my own. But somehow, by your grace, you've made a solution. that You sent your son to die in, in my place. And I receive your salvation by faith in that promise and that faith in Christ. I understand how that works out, but the part I can't understand is why. Why you would save someone like me. That's the great mystery. People say, oh, how do you wrestle with the Trinity or how do you wrestle with Jesus being God? And man, that's the easy part. What about God rescuing me? I know who I am. But you love me. And so, Lord, I celebrate that. I, I, I rest in that. And I pray that all of us, Lord, that every one of us would just walk out of here just praising you for the fact that you rescued us, that we were helpless. We were completely without any support. There's nothing we could do. But you extended this invitation to us that we received by faith. And I pray that, Father, that all of us received it by faith and we turn right around and we go declare it, Lord, that we wouldn't be ashamed that we would be eager to share the gospel because we have the power, your word in us, the gospel, the power, your power to change lives, not for just a little while, but forever. I thank you for that. I beg you with all my heart, raise up a people now, Lord, who are hungry for your word, who are willing to go out and storm the gates of hell and rescue the lost. I thank you for that. And I pray your blessing on all that are here and all that are not. 
And I pray that you meet us all where we need to be met. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world. Thank you.